Have you ever seen Mary Poppins? I mean, this is a movie musical masterpiece that has been delighting people of all ages for more than 50 years. It has one of the best casting decisions ever in the history of movies with Ed Wynn as Uncle Albert. There's nobody better than Ed Wynn as Uncle Albert. If you've never seen Mary Poppins, you need to go see Mary Poppins just to see Uncle Albert. You may have also heard this week that plans are out to do a sequel to Mary Poppins, announced this week, which begs that question that everybody is asking these days, what is it about the sequels? Why does everything have to have a sequel? Why are there so many sequels out there today? Well, I discovered this week that sequel is just one part of the sequel family. This is how the family breaks down. There is the sequel, and the prequel, and the interquel, and the midquel, and the sidequel, and the parallel story, and the spiritual successor, and the companion piece, and the reboot, and the standalone sequels, and the remake. Can you imagine when the opening credits are rolling, you're going, which one of those am I seeing right now? I mean, you'll get stressed out. This is the, the picture, though, of how the movie industry is moving and how they are working. But why are there so many sequels? Why, why is this the dominating part of life at the theater? Linda Opst is a producer. She has produced a number of TV shows and movies, including Sleepless in Seattle and lately Interstellar. Last year, she published a book about why it seems like Hollywood is losing their originality. And the title of the book is this, Sleepless in Hollywood, Tales from the New Abnormal in the Movie Business. In an interview about the book with CNN, she began to share some reasons why she thinks there are so many sequels. And one of those reasons is the incredible impact of the international movie world. In fact, it's reported that China is building 10 movie theaters a day in China. And it's predicted that in the next five years, they will be the number one movie market in the world. But that international success, that international influence, it is strategically connected to something that Opes calls pre-awareness. Well, what is pre-awareness? This is what she says. We need people to know our title, to know the name of the movie, to be familiar with it before it's even marketed. So that means a movie star's name. That's one form of pre-awareness. And then she goes on. But increasingly what that means is the name of the title. Superman, Batman, any man movie, any comic book hero that we've grown up with, any title with that kind of international recognition, people will go to. So people will go to what they recognize. People will go when they have some pre-awareness. But the very nature of pre-awareness also tells us what? That once is not enough. See, the, the very nature of a sequel or a reboot or a remake or a reimagining is that no matter how bad or good the first one was, it wasn't enough. There has to be something more. Literally, though, with the price of a combo movie ticket, popcorn, and drink costing just less than the cost of a used minivan these days, the reality is it would be nice if every now and then there was at least one that one was enough, right? 
I mean, it'd be really nice if there was some measure of satisfaction that lasted longer than just two hours. Or maybe if we were to take it into real life, wouldn't it be nice if your car problems didn't have a sequel? Wouldn't it be nice if there wasn't a reboot of last week's math quiz? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if the IRS didn't reimagine what you owe? Wouldn't it be nice if your hospital bills were really just a movie instead of a multi-year TV series? There's a lot of aspects of the problems of life that would be nice if there weren't any sequels. And what would be really, really nice is if there was some help for the deepest problem of your life and that help would actually spread out into every other corner of your life. In other words, wouldn't it be nice if your deepest problem was met and then that meeting of that need actually would bring hope to all the other stuff that happens in life? We know there's something just like that. And Paul writes to his friend Titus about it. We're going to look today at verses 6 and 7, but I want to read back up starting in verse 3. Titus 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing, by the Holy Spirit. The greatest problem that any and every human being will ever have is the inability to rescue their own soul. The inability to own your own, make yourself right with God. But Paul has some really good news for that problem and he writes to Titus about it and he uses some great pronouns to describe this good news. It says it right there. It says, we were once foolish. We were once deceived. But his love appeared. And he saved us. And he did it all by his mercy. Great, great pronouns. So how does God save people by his mercy? Well, he saves people by his mercy. By, in an instant, reaching down and bringing life to the dead soul of a person. And he does that through the washing the internal washing of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's some serious washing. How in the world can the Holy Spirit get inside and do that kind of cleaning? Well, Paul tells us, look at verse 6. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So God pours out the Holy Spirit into a person's life through Jesus Christ. All right, what does that mean? Well, hours before he was arrested and ultimately executed for our sin, Jesus was talking to his closest friends on earth. And he told them that he was about to leave them. And he also told them this pretty helpful news. John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That helper is the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls him the helper. So who is the Holy Spirit? Well, let's first say who the Holy Spirit is not. 
He is not the force, okay? He is not just an influence. He is not just an attitude. He is a divine being. God the Spirit is a divine person. And Jesus calls him the helper. Jesus says he's a helper, he's a comforter, he's an interpreter, he's an advisor, he's a defender, he's an encourager. <laughs> there are some pretty big titles. What, what do all those titles mean? Well, they mean this. That's just our best shot at trying to explain who the Holy Spirit is. See, there's really no way in human terms we can describe how awesome and how incredible the Holy Spirit is. But we do have a picture of kind of how he operates and, and what he does. And this is what the Bible tells us he does. He brings conviction of sin. He brings repentance of sin. He brings fear and awe and reverence toward God. He brings love and devotion and commitment to God. He brings faith in Christ. He brings hope in Christ. He brings peace in Christ. And he brings joy in Christ. That's just some of what the Holy Spirit does. So, you're a disciple. <laughs> and you just heard that Jesus is, is leaving that would be really good news to know that that kind of helper was about to show up, that this helper was going to be there to be a part of your life. The interesting thing, though, is Jesus had never told them about the Spirit before. I mean, this, this is an incredible help. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the helper. Jesus never said anything to him until just hours before he was going to be arrested. Why is that? Well, we live in a culture where we think we have to know everything, where we have to know all the information. We have to have all the answers for everything that's going on in the universe. But it's interesting, if you watch Jesus with his disciples all the way leading up to the cross, there's a pretty consistent theme. He keeps telling them, look, you don't need all the answers to everything in the universe, but you do need me. You, you do need me. You need to believe in me. You need to trust in me. You need to cling to me. You need to rely on me. You really need me. And that sounds good, but in deference to the disciples, they're thinking, yeah, but, but you're, you're getting ready to leave. So how can we do all those things when you're about to leave us? I think that's a fair question. I think one of us would have probably asked the same question had we been there. And so Jesus, in kindness, he responds. He says, look, I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you hanging. I'm leaving you a helper. I'm leaving you someone who's, who's kind of just like me. You see, at just the right moment in history, Jesus was born. It wasn't an accident. It was just the right moment. At just the right moment in history, Jesus Christ came into this world to meet your greatest need, and that's the need to be rescued from the condemnation of your sin. See, at just the right time, Jesus came to rescue us from sin, to rescue us and, and absorb the penalty of sin. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At just the right time in history, Jesus Christ came into the world to make the way for you to no longer be condemned under your sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. At just the right moment in history, Jesus made it possible for sinners Condemned sinners like me and you to actually come to God, to be brought to God, to have a relationship with God. 
And at just the right moment in history, Jesus left. At just the right moment, he left. But when he left, he sent for the helper. He sent for the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, is, is like him. He, he helps people get rescued. The Holy Spirit helps people no longer be condemned. He helps people come to God. In the Old Testament, the primary source of help was God himself. At the beginning of the New Testament, the primary source of help was Jesus. But we have lived now for some 2,000 years where our help actually comes from the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means that I don't have to live with the Israelites in order to get help from God. It means that I don't have to be sitting next to Jesus 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem in order to get help from God. It means that I, I have help now. We're thrilled that our friend Rick is back from being away for over a month almost now, serving our country halfway around the world. You know what's great? <laughs> Rick does not have to be in this room to get the Holy Spirit. See, halfway around the world, Rick called on God for the last month. Rick was able to enjoy the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life because he's not dependent on this building for God. See, the great thing about the Holy Spirit is there is no moment of life where he is not there to help. That's tremendous news. Because you know what? Your parents won't always be there to help. And your spouse won't always be there to help. And your pastor won't always be there to help. And your friends won't always be there to help. And you may lose some money. Your team may lose the game. But you cannot lose the Holy Spirit. He is not temporary help. He is permanent help. The Holy Spirit comes and washes and regenerates and renews the dead soul of a person. And then the Holy Spirit stays. <laughs> he doesn't leave. He takes up residence. In that soul. So what does that mean? What does that look like? One night, in the middle of the night, Jesus was talking to a church leader named Nicodemus. And this is what he said to him. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You've heard me mention this before. It's my favorite take on this verse from Billy Graham, who said, I can't see the wind, but I can see the effects of the wind. 30 years ago, I started seeing the effects of the Spirit in my life, and I have continued to see the effects of the Spirit in my life. I have seen the effects of the Holy Spirit in, in some of your lives, even this morning. But I've seen the effects of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people my whole life. And then likewise, I've also seen the lack of the Spirit in people's lives. This is what Paul said to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they're foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
You see, one of the most helpful signs that a person has been washed and regenerated and renewed and saved and rescued is that they don't spend all day fighting against God. They don't spend their life fighting against the Spirit. In other words, this isn't the kind of thing where you would regularly hear them say things like, well, I know what the Bible says, but, but this situation's different. You, you wouldn't hear them say, well, my God is not like that. And if I were to bring in a church level, you would never hear them say on any regular basis, well, hey, I give my tithe, so I got a right to do whatever I want. See, that's the opposite of what the Spirit does. See, the Holy Spirit is poured out in the life of a believer, not so that that believer can be a selfish whiner always trying to get his or her way. That's not why Jesus poured out the Spirit into our lives. Jesus pours out the Spirit into our lives so that we can be saved so that we can be rescued, so that we can be redeemed, so that we can no longer be condemned. And he pours out the Spirit into our life so that outside of this building, people would see the light and the hope that we have in Jesus. And he poured the Spirit into our lives so that we would be satisfied. That's a big word, right? Satisfied. Satisfied with what? Look what Paul says in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace. Justification or being justified is, is courtroom language. See, we, we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us measure up to God. And so because we don't measure up to God, that means in the highest court of the universe, our sin actually rightly condemns us. So justification means this, that God, being the judge of the highest court in the universe, he removes the label of condemnation and he replaces it with a sentence of not guilty. See, justification is something that happens to a person. A person cannot justify themselves according to everything we see in the scripture. You can't be the judge and be on trial at the same time. So this concept of justification is something that only can God do. Only God can change your sentence. Only God can make you no longer fall short, but to be part of his family. That's a work that God does. And how does he do that? Well, he does it by his grace. He, he pours out grace into your life. Think of it this way. What does the one true God of the universe owe you? Get ready to hurt all our feelings, okay? He didn't owe us nothing. But the one true God of the universe owes me nothing. He doesn't owe me anything. But he desires, he has a passion, he has a thirst of love that wants to give me something. And he, what he wants to give to us is the sentence of not guilty. You see, you, you can't throw money at the court in the hope of, of swaying your sentence. You can't put on a sob story in front of the judge and hope that he's going to change his mind. You can't do community service and, and work off some of your sentence. There's absolutely nothing I can do and nothing you can do to get this not guilty. It is a reflection of the grace of God. It is unmerited, undeserved, and unearned. Somebody might say, well, hang on. That's not how it works. I mean, there ain't nothing free in life. Somebody had to pay for something somewhere. You're right. This is how Paul said it to the church at Rome. Romans 3, 24 and 25. Being justified as a gift by his grace... 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. So we've had justification, and now we have this word redemption. The word here for redemption was a word that was used in the, in the ancient slave trade, and it meant that a payment had to be made in order for somebody to be released. So being justified means that, that God, out of his grace, freely gives salvation freely gives this not guilty because of his grace. But that gift has a price. There's a payment that has to be made for that gift. There's a, there's a ransom that's been paid. And who paid that ransom? Well, Jesus. Jesus paid the ransom. And how did Jesus pay the ransom? He paid it through the propitiation of his blood. Whew, big word there, right? Justification, redemption, propitiation. Man, oh man. What in the world does propitiation mean? Well, simply put, it means satisfied. It means that a payment has been satisfied, not by the person who owes it, but by somebody else. You see, we fall short of the glory of God. We, we are sinners. We are rightly condemned for our sin. Jesus, on the other hand, never sinned. And there hasn't been a billionth of a second that Jesus has ever even remotely been near being short of the glory of God. So Jesus, he steps in as our propitiation. In other words, Jesus satisfied what we owed. Jesus absorbed the penalty of our sin. He took care of the payment. The ransom has been paid, and that propitiation has no sequel. There's no sequel for it. It can't be remade, it can't be rebooted, it cannot be reimagined. Jesus Christ has perfectly and completely and ultimately and eternally satisfied the wrath of God. That's what he has done. And that's what he's done with his blood. I love how the old hymn puts it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I that's a great word, right? All. So just consider this. If you're a Christian, you've been washed, you've been regenerated, you've been renewed, you've been saved, you've been rescued, you are no longer condemned, you've been redeemed, all because of Jesus. All because of Jesus. All because of the grace of God working through the person of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. That grace is not a one-and-done gift. That grace actually matters tomorrow morning while you're in traffic. That grace matters for that doctor's appointment this week. That grace matters for the spouse or the child that's driving you nuts. That grace matters for the hard thing that's waiting at work or the hard thing that's waiting at school. See, that Grace is not a one-time gift. It keeps giving, it keeps giving, and it touches every single part of your life. How does it do that? Look at the next part of verse 7. Paul writes, So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's impossible for me to describe how awesome that verse is, but I'm going to do my best. The hope of eternal life comes into every single moment. 
There's no moment of your life that the hope of eternal life does not impact. When you look at the early church, when you look at these new Christians who are being persecuted and crucified for their faith, their hope was found in something that wasn't in that moment. Their hope was found in the eternal life that they found in Jesus. And that hope gets in every single moment of life. I'll say it this way. If we will allow it. We can push it back, right? Ah, eternity's later on. I need money now. Know what the commercial says? How do you get cash now? That's how we think. I need cash now. I need love now. I need help now. I need a grade now. I need a job now. I need my car to work now. Actually, that last one's really helpful sometimes, right? I do need my car to work right now. But we're, we're now, right? We need, we need everything right now. But the truth of the matter is this hope that we have in Jesus, this hope that we have in eternal life, it hits every moment. It can, it can transform every moment of our life. And if we're honest with ourselves, we think we believe that, but if we're really honest, we kind of refuse to live that way. We just keep pushing it back. So I came across something this week that, that I hope will help us not push it back, at least a little more, that we'll, we'll move closer to that. And basically, this that I'm about to share is, is kind of an answer to, so what does it mean to have eternal life? It goes like this. It is the hour of your dying. You're in the hospital. It is in the middle of the night. Your best beloved has fallen asleep from exhaustion on the chair beside your bed. Long ago, you had heard the voice of the Lord, and you obeyed and followed him in faith. But now, a storm begins to rage as Satan throws all his final force against your faith. You feel the reality of eternity like you have never felt it before. The wind of doubt and the waves of fear lash your soul. And then, by the grace of God, there comes a scene, and it is your scene. You're in a boat in a storm. And Jesus is approaching you on the water, and on his face there is no fear. With his hair and his cloak flying in the wind, he stops a short way off and stands with his strong hands, relaxed at his side in sovereign peace. And from the boat, with one last heart-rending glance at your beloved asleep in the chair, you say, Christ, bid me come. And he says, come. And you begin to walk on the water. But then, in the final instant, you are utterly overwhelmed with what is happening. I'm dying. I'm dying. This water is so deep. It's dark. It's cold. It's filled with hideous creatures. And for fear, you begin to sink. But the promise of Jesus never fails. And with a mighty hand, he seizes your arm and he pulls you to himself. And the storm ceases and there is a great, beautiful calm upon the sea. And it is over. And you know like you never imagined you could know that Jesus is precious because he has given you eternal life. That's why justification and redemption and propitiation cannot be remade. They cannot be rebooted. They cannot be reimagined. There's not a sequel that can be connected. Because this hope 
of eternal life that comes from Jesus Christ. It's, it's perfect. It's not average. It's not temporary. It is, it is permanent and it is perfect. You see, at the end of the day, there is nothing else that is needed. You don't need more. Jesus Christ really is all you need. He really is all you need. Let's pray.